0: After the financial crisis, Iceland
1: put people in jail. The United States did that after the savings and loan crisis. It did that after the Enron accounting scandal. It did not do it after 2008. When we look back over the last 10 years and see the almost insouciant ways in which bankers did deeply destructive and arguably illegal things, it is hard not to wonder about culture. It feels naive a little, but standing on the outside, I keep wondering still even a decade later... How did they think that was okay? One answer, nobody ever goes to jail for this stuff. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. Before we start, I have some housekeeping. I am on book leave this summer. Here's what that means. You won't be hearing a lot of my voice during the next few weeks. You're going to hear more from Isabella Kaminska and Jemima Kelly and all of the other people at AlphaVille. Back to bankers. In March, the group of 30, that's a bunch of wise people who work in finance, released a report about banking culture. That is, what's wrong and what needs to change. I sat down at the Rhodes Center in Providence with some of the people who helped put that report together. Elizabeth St. Ange of Oliver Wyman, Nick lepan he's the former superintendent of financial institutions for Canada, and Stuart McIntosh of the group of 30. We talked about how banks prioritize speed, about how they link pay to sales, but we started by asking what? exactly the problem is that the group of 30 wants
2: to solve. There's lots of evidence over the past 5 to 10 years and some of it quite recently that there were breakdowns in the conduct of how banks treated customers that are attributable to the culture in the bank not being the way you and I would expect it to be and want it to be. And The Group of 30s view is that that is primarily a problem that banks have to play a huge role in fixing. Regulation can do some things, but banks themselves have to take the lead, their boards, their management teams. And so we set out to see how that's going. How have we made progress since the financial crisis in in having improved cultures in these organizations, improved systems to measure and manage and monitor those cultures. And prevent some of the kind of horrendous occurrences that have cost so much both to customers, communities, but also to the organizations themselves.
1: Well, so Stuart, let's start with the crisis. It does seem surprising that we could look back now, ten years, and say something that went that wrong didn't cause wholesale change in the industry. So, what was it about the immediate post-crisis period? About you know when many countries were open to a completely different approach to finance that failed to create meaningful change so that we're still looking at culture as something that we need to address.
3: Well, first of all, I think getting culture right, correcting those bad behaviors, those problematic norms, the problematic cultures within firms takes a long time anyway. So when trying to fix the problem, is a long-term challenge. It takes, it takes years and years and constant focus by the leaders, by the, by the CEO, by the chair. So it's a long-term thing to fix. So it's not, it's not easy just to change the system and create fixes to the broken banking culture. So that's, that's first of all, uh, what I would observe. But, but I, I, I would also say that it's also arguable that in, in response to the global financial crisis, uh, we didn't prosecute enough people for their failures. Remember we did prosecute people after the collapse of the tech bubble, senior CEOs who were found to do serious wrong went to prison. We didn't send bankers to prison and people are very angry even today about that and perhaps that's part of the failure was that we didn't hold people to account at the outset but then getting the banking culture question correct and on the right uh, trajectory is also a long-term project.
1: So it's easy to draw a line from, Stuart, as as you've said, the failure to prosecute bankers um, to deep anger among voters. I think we've seen that consequence in a number of countries, among them uh, the United States. Um, But how did that failure affect the banking industry itself? Can we try a counterfactual? What might have happened culturally within the industry had there been a few prominent prosecutions of CEOs?
3: Well, I think we would have signaled to people uh, that we were more serious about this. Uh, And other countries, of course, have done that. So you think about Iceland. The former prime minister of Iceland went to prison. Most of the leading bankers in Iceland went to prison. Now, it's not the only solution to the problem, but it does signal to the population that we're taking it seriously. Now, we think that bankers today are taking it much more seriously, that they understand that their banks have to get the culture question right, for them to be long-term, sustainable institutions that provide for their employees, for their clients, and for society broadly. But there were other instances in, in the immediate uh, response to the global financial crisis outside of America where, yes, people were held to account immediately, and then the reform process began.
1: There were a number of things that that Iceland did that were sort of beyond the pale, that were inconceivable before that. Capital controls, for one. That was just something that nobody thought a modern economy would do, A, and B, that it would work, as well as it seems to have worked for Iceland. But Nick, jump in here.
2: On the counterfactual, I think that effective enforcement of the rules, and that goes to including very serious penalties for those responsible, is very important but it's only part of the story because inherently that's always going to be after the fact. So if we're going to also try to reduce the chances of some of these misconduct problems and cultural problems happening before the fact in the first place so that we don't have the impacts on, on customers, communities, and these institutions, there have to be other permanent changes that are called for in, in the work that's been done here, some of which are happening, but some of which have to continue to, to, to occur. And, and it is a permanent mindset change. It's not the kind of thing where we can say we're getting from here to there and now we can declare victory and stop worrying about this. Organizations that have great cultures care about it on an ongoing basis, day in, day out, to, to build value.
4: Yeah, and I wanted to pick up to what uh, Nick said about it not just being um, about the rules and the laws you really, I mean, rules are important, but you don't want to just have a rules-based organization. No one feels good about working always within rules. You also want principles-based and values-based organizations. Employees feel good about organizations that they're affiliated with and work with that are positive, that they feel are doing the right things, and they come to work fully engaged, motivated to do the right things. And that's where you want to get, as an organization, as a leadership, you want your people to want to do the right thing, not because they have to, but because they want to.
1: It seems like one of the challenges that we're looking at inside of a banking organization is that people want to succeed by the value system that's important to them, and so it seems to make sense what you're saying that if you want to, if you want to succeed according to the value system of the bank, the bank wants to do good. You want to be a part of that mission, but. That is at odds with the value system that we all know to be true inside many banks, and particularly the ones uh, that, you know, tend to have high leverage, that, you know, that tend to be, um, you know, taking big risks, uh, is that the value system is if you can find a way to make a ton of money for the bank, that is the definition of success. How do you take that value
3: system and change it? Well, we found that what has often occurred is that the banks that are best able to grapple with these cultural challenges and to actually reform their cultures and refocus them on things that matter not just on the the financial performance are those that have had crises but have lived through them and there's been a sudden change crisis often is a moment of opportunity as as much as uh, as pain and so they after that crisis new leadership comes in they're able to say we see what went wrong in UBS or in Wells Fargo or wherever it else it is and we will now going forward uh, champion these behaviors. We will embed them in the training of employees. We will exhibit them at the board. The CEO will exhibit those behaviors. We will champion it. We will give money. We will pay people for exhibiting those behaviors and we'll penalize those who do not. You're absolutely right. It's hard. It, it It's hard to change cultures. And, and, and in fact, in many cases, it's after a crisis that you can get that boost of action that then that creates dynamism and change.
2: I think it's also very important that we not just think of this challenge as one that only happens in part of an organization or organizations that have high risks or that are the sort of kind of investment banking organizations that we talk about of casino capitalism, that sort of kind of stuff. Many of the issues that have occurred recently have been in the traditional retail banks and how they've treated what we would call as ordinary customers. Um, so boards of directors, senior management teams need to consider that they have to be aware of what the culture really is in the organization, no matter what kind of a banking organization it is. And there's no one silver bullet. Uh, there are it's a combination of things that need to be there. It's not just the tone from the top where we're espousing uh our values that we put on the wall it's making sure that those are real that they're lived every day that they're explained to people they're reinforced that we provide the right incentives for people to abide by them. There's a whole host of parts of this to to actually have uh, an organization that is well, uh, that has a good culture. And there are examples of great organizations in banking and outside of banking that have fantastic cultures. And we have to also understand that this is about the long-term success and sustainability of the organization. And that may involve some short-term give up in, 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 in revenue, but it, but, stewards of these organizations and the boards are key in this because they are on behalf of shareholders are there in part for the long-term sustainability of the organization they have to keep that in mind. Let's try to diagnose the, a, a problem. We've been talking
1: about solutions, but I, I want to understand better when you look at something, we'll, ta- we'll take something that, that happened at a bunch of banks, the robo-signing where, um, you know, where banks foreclosed on people uh, without proper documentation, without proper process. Um, and, uh, you know, that had very real consequences for people who suddenly found themselves without a house and no redress. Um, how does something like that, what is the cultural... Failing that allows something like that to happen. So before we talk about the solution, what's the diagnosis? Because that was we don't have to talk about any one organization. We can probably name five that did that.
3: It's it's certainly the case that that, that you there's a massive process failure there, where where clearly the banks were in, were were engaged in trying to do as much business as fast as possible. So it was about the top line. And 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 you didn't care about the, the the legality or the process being appropriate. And clearly, that is a failure of senior and middle management, so, and it fi- filters all the way down through the through the chain. So
1: prioritizing speed. Yeah, prioritizing. That's, that's, so that's one yeah. speed over speed over process. And
3: the misaligned incentives, something that we stress very strongly, which is, for instance, we argue in a, in the report that there should be a a cut between. We should no longer link uh, sales performance. And remuneration, earnings of of the employees, and that's something that we we need to grapple with in banking more generally, which is the outsized incentives, even if the bank is performing badly as a result of the actions of those individuals. That has to stop. There needs to be direct linkage between the way in which you earn money and the uh, and not just how much you earn for the bank. So it's not what you earned; it's how you got
1: there. That but matters. that's a massive shift. That's a redefinition of what banking is.
3: I don't think so. I think it's a redefinition of certain types of banking or certain ways of banking. But it is, it, as Elizabeth said earlier, most people go to work not just to earn money. They go to work because they're proud of the institution they work for, because they're proud of the goals of the, of the institution and its role in commu- in the community and in society. And the banks need to be very clear about that, those different overlapping goals and responsibilities.
4: Yeah, we we see many of the issues when they occur. There's two two fundamental, I think, sources of why this happens. One is, as Stuart was saying, the lack of clarity. You have to be really, really clear of what your organization stands for. What are your goals? What is your strategy? But also as a senior leadership team, be clear about the trade-offs. Every organization, every business has to make trade-offs in pursuit of its goals. Well, are you clear about what those trade-offs are? Because if senior leadership does not clearly you know speak out and 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 sort of articulate what the trade-offs are they push those conflicts down to the front line now suddenly employees are stuck between what they think is the right thing to do what they think is expected of them what the goals of the organizations are so you want to be a hundred percent clear on expectations and then after that you have to have everything in alignment processes structures systems everything has to be aligned with what are those goals that you're pursuing as an organization. So that's really interesting.
1: It's, let me make sure I understand correctly what you're saying. If you are the leader of any institution, but a bank in particular, and you avoid hard choices, you're just laundering those hard choices for yourself. Someone's going to have to make them. Hard hard choices exist, and they cannot be avoided.
4: Absolutely. How do you choose between you know? Organizations have different goals around innovation, or client service, or cost cutting, or operational excellence, or profitability. By the way, all of those things are good things, right? None of those are bad in and of themselves. The challenge is you may have to make trade-offs between those things at various times. And you're right. If senior leadership is not making those trade-offs, all they have done is push them down through the organization. And people in their everyday life, because there aren't rules for everything, nor should there be, they're having to use their judgment, right? I have a situation, I have a client that comes in, I'm dealing with them, it's not black and white, what should I do or not do? I have to use my judgment. And if I don't know what is clearly expected of me, I may make a bad judgment. And so it is about having that very clear articulation of what the organization stands for and the expectations of behaviors and not just those high-level values that look great, you know, 10 words or less and look great on a plaque, but where employees don't necessarily understand what that means in their day-to-day job.
2: And as a senior leader in the organization, in addition to trying to do your best to make clear what, how you want those trade-offs to be made... You also have a responsibility to be aware of how those trade offs are being made down at the front line and the front line leaders have a responsibility to be aware of that and they have a responsibility to say, I'm not sure I'm totally comfy with this and I'd I'd like to just check that this is okay. And one of the things that was a problem in the financial crisis and is a problem in a lot of these kind of culture and conduct events is that there wasn't adequate checks and balances within the organizations so that when the inevitable choices had to get made at the front line, because you can't define everything from the top, those judgments got made and people weren't aware what judgments were fully being made and, and they should have been because they weren't acceptable. And I believe some of the people who after the fact said, I didn't know, but they should have known. That's part of their responsibility.
1: But this culture seems so different from uh, another a, a, a successful culture in many ways that you know, we've talked about before, uh, which is the military. Um, it makes me think of the captain of a ship or even the officer on deck. If you're the officer on deck and the ship runs aground, it does not matter if you had bad charts. It does not matter if whoever was at the wheel wasn't paying attention. None of that matters. All of it was your responsibility. And that is the end of your career. You will be at a desk and not on a ship for the rest of your time in the Navy. The same is true of of, of, of the skipper on board, even though the skipper might have been sleeping at the time. Why is that culture not true at banks?
3: The, the better institutions can get that right. And we see them on occasion getting it right. So A particular individual takes takes an action which is breaking the rules or the norms of that firm somebody is has looked the other way and not seen it deliberately or you know willful blindness and then their manager doesn't take the right action in that in that case all of those people need to be fired the reverse case is the the better one where the person takes immediate responsibility and puts his hand up and says i can see that this is going wrong immediately raises the issue, addresses it straight away. But I agree with you that the best institutions, there's Im- immediate first line responsibility throughout the institution. And that's why we say that you. it's not just enough for the leadership to embody culture, to do it, to believe it, to breathe it, to exhibit it on a daily basis. All the managers throughout the institution have to understand it, and there has to be constant discussion and revisiting of those issues so that the people on the front line, when the difficult questions arise, when the difficult cases arise, can grapple with it in a reasonable way. And in fact, because the manager may not be there, say, for instance, we don't do business like that in this firm.
2: So in the military, you know, you do have a code of military conduct and so forth. I'm not sure that works in banking. But the point I would make is that boards have it within their power today to hold CEOs accountable in exactly the way that the skipper is held accountable. If there is a major breakdown in culture and conduct within an organization, they have that authority today. And in a number of cases that we've seen, they haven't exercised that authority until they've either been forced to do so by regulators or by the market after the fact. So part of what this report is focusing on is the huge accountability that exists on boards to exercise their responsibilities to hold people to account for the kind of failings that we're talking about.
4: I also think it brings up, you know, when we compare it to the military or other industries that have done very well, it fundamentally comes down to leadership. Right. And I think the military has spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to lead people. And we often use the words manager and leader interchangeably, but they're very different. Right. Truly leading people takes incredible skill and and thought Um, and certainly when we did this report and all the interviews that we did, a lot of organizations are rethinking leadership. What does it mean? These organizations are incredibly complex and large and difficult to manage. And do they have leaders across every level, including middle management, not just at the very top, but across every level of the organization that are truly capable, They have the skills, the knowledge, the capabilities, and the understanding to lead people through, you know, to make the right judgment calls?
1: Is there an institution that we can point to within banking where that culture works right now, where the head of a division will get fired for a compliance violation? Is that culture extant anywhere?
3: I do think there are some examples. They tend to be slightly smaller. They're not the the largest firms in the world. They're they're firms in which the, the CEO and the chair can get their hands around the firm as a whole. They may be more s- simpler in the structure of the firm. They may be single country firms uh, where the CEO knows all the managing directors personally, can make a judgment call about whether something is appropriate or not, and then telegraphs it to the firm both on the upside and the downside. And if it's severe, the person is fired. We've definitely seen examples. I don't want to point to a particular firm, but yes, I believe there are examples and they tend to be not the world's largest firms, Medium-sized firms that are manageable, it's arguable that some of these super large firms with a quarter of a million employees across all the the major markets in the world are much harder to manage.
1: So we talk about strategically important financial institutions, and there's this concern that they're too big to fail, but it also sounds like they're too big to succeed.
3: They are very difficult to manage, definitely. Very complex.
1: We've been talking about the responsibilities of the board, um, which is great because it allows us to look at a specific structural part of a bank and say, look, you need to take more responsibility. You you are uh, the skippers in this metaphor that we've been working on. Um, What about shareholders? Shareholders need to be able to hear we're going to do some things differently at this bank. And and y- your returns may not be great the next quarter, the quarter after that, or, or maybe for a while. Um, and it's just the thing that we have to do because it's the right thing to do. That communication uh, is not something that I have ever once heard on a bank earnings call. When we look at quarterly bank earnings, we talk about you know fixed income results and private banking results. and And we don't We don't talk about, you know, anyone ever having said, look, the results are not as good this quarter because we're trying to be better people. So how do we invent that kind of shareholder communication?
2: So uh, the part of the communication that I didn't hear in what you said was not only this is the right thing to do, but this is the right thing to do. And it is crucial for the long term sustainability and profitability of this organization, and that discussion does happen. It probably doesn't happen on a quarterly earnings call. And I would argue that one of our issues here is short-termism versus long-termism. Because long-term thinking tends to more more focus on things like the sustainability and long-term success of the organization. Um, and increasingly, we're seeing representatives of the investor community... Um, managers of funds and the report calls for more of this to actually be querying boards in their engagement with companies and with senior management. What are you doing to be aware of the culture in in your organization? What are you doing to make sure you're promoting the long-term sustainability of your organization? I think there's room for more of that. The report calls for more of that. Um, And that may mean that there's some short-term profitability that give up that has to be there. But one of the key things I think that the report emphasizes is that this is getting culture and conduct right on a permanent basis is hugely value creating for the organizations that do it well on a long-term sustainability kind of basis.
1: I worry with what you're talking about, but also with sustainable investing in general that you are, that when we say um, it's going to be better long-term for, for results, that we're setting up an expectation that we may not be able to meet. And we're leading the question or the, the possibility that to do things responsibly for ourselves and for the values that we all certainly hold in our own family lives um, may necessarily mean making less money. I, I, I'm not confident that we can guarantee that it's going to work out, that sustainable banking, sustainable investing, any of these things are going to make us more money if we do it right.
3: I, th- I, think, I think that's right. We're not saying we're not that you're saying going that. to make more money. But we're saying that in the in the medium to long term, for banking to be successful, to repair its trust, to deliver for its clients, its communities, and its societies, it 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 has to pre- perform in the way that we're describing. And that yeah, maybe it means you don't make twenty percent per annum. Maybe you make less. Maybe you have to t- tell your investors. I know you think I should pay my uh, bankers more in their bonuses, but I'm but I'm not going to do it because they haven't been performing properly and it's against the long-term interest of my bank. I think I
1: get it a little better. Now, I didn't understand before. We're not talking about, you know, guaranteeing a, a certain kind of return. Nope. We're talking right. about guaranteeing the continued existence of the firm so that a return is possible, period. That's right.
4: To function well and sustainably in the long term and be successful, these organizations need the trust of the public, right? These these What they sell and what they do is complicated, so there's a certain amount of trust that is required. And they also need to be able to attract the best talent. And so to have the trust of your customers and attract the best talent, you need to have a culture that is that is good, that is positive, that is productive. And if financial institutions lose that, they will lose both on, on the talent's front and on the client front.
1: There's a little bit of John Maynard Keynes in what you're saying here at the table, which is, you know, in the 30s, he said, listen, we have to fix capitalism because if we don't, they're going to take it away from us.
3: And it, it's not incidental that young people now, young students, talented young students are not going to finance they're going to it they're going to other fields why because clearly they've been put off by the repeated uh failures in conduct and culture that they've been disgusted by and we need to repair it and it's going to take a long time but as elizabeth says for it for the banks to be successful in the long term they have to engage in this process of repair and maybe that means yeah that they make less money uh, going forward Uh, but are more stable. Perhaps we would all be better off as a result.
1: You mentioned students. Um, Is there a problem in the way that we train capitalists? If if banks are taking their recruits from the top MBA programs, uh, do we need to look at the values that are taught in those MBA programs? Because those are the ones you arrive with.
3: Definitely. I think we know that many MBA programs do not teach ethics and take take the view that it's not their job to teach ethics. Uh, I would dispute that and say, actually, yes, it is your job. If your students are going to go on and run the largest companies in the United States and the world, they ought to be taught ethics, just like lawyers are taught legal ethics. Uh, We can expect a degree of underpinning like that, and we should expect it. We expect it of many other areas of, of professional endeavor.
2: I also think that when we're teaching these kind of things, either in schools or in these banking organizations... It's important to recognize that the trade-offs are sometimes tricky to know what actually is the right thing to do. So it's not just about teaching ethics in the abstract. It's about applying that to real-life situations. Well, what would you do in this situation? What is the right thing to do in this situation? And that's, I think, important both in teaching, in MBA schools and other places. I think it's also important within banks to explain to to frontline staff what does that nice piece of paper on the wall that talks about our values and our mission really mean in practice in real life circumstances and build opportunities for people who are unsure about how to deal with situations that arise that may be quite complex how to treat how to treat people properly according to the ethics that we really want here
1: I mean, I think it's fascinating that, um, and I've never been able to put my finger on on why or exactly how, but there do seem to be two different spheres of, of ethics that people who would never steal from a friend, never steal from a shopkeeper, you know, would always want to set a good example uh, for their children, walk in the door of the business where they are every day and they say, well, yeah, I just got to do this stuff because my shareholders expect it. I, I, I mean, again, we're talking beyond banking. We're talking about an issue with business, but I see it again and again and again in the stories that I write, that there are two spheres of ethics and there's this, and it's, and it's seen as acceptable that you walk out of your family sphere and into
2: your work sphere. What I think is such a pity about that story is that many of those people are working in the organizations which also say we put clients and customers first. We put clients and customers first. And that, what you just said, said gives the lie to that. They don't. So if they really want to do that, and they're really serious about doing that, there's a whole bunch of things that this report talks about that they can do to make that real.
3: And the banks need to take on board this broader purpose. So they need to clarify their own cultural norms and behavior standards and, and embed them within the firm. And then they have to... Fully embrace this, their key role in society, and understand it's not just about shareholders. I would say also that remember that there are different cultures around the world that are, that operate uh, differently from the United States Anglo banking culture. The banking culture in Japan is completely different. The com- compensation rates are much lower. Uh, the notion that you would you would deliberately circumvent a rule is is almost unheard of there. So. There are different ways of looking at it, and perhaps we need to learn some of the comparative lessons, and and perhaps yeah recast uh, in our minds the way in which banking fits within uh, within our markets and what it means to be a good banker. I think we know what it means. People know in their personal life, as you say. What, what is and is not uh, ethical behavior. And that needs to be reflected in, in, the, in the sort of rules, but more importantly, norms and behaviors that we expect of them in the firm and which are embedded in the firm and demonstrated in the firm.
2: Because some of the smaller and medium-sized institutions that Stuart referred to earlier that are doing this well, the people who are running those organizations and work in those organizations think about, so who am I going to meet on the street in my local store, in my local community, if I don't treat the customers well. And they very much keep that in mind. That's a huge part of relationship banking and community banking. And that is a different attitude if you actually don't think about putting the customer really first.
1: You, I, you, we were talking about this earlier today. I, I had a conversation uh, five years ago, I think about all the time, with a community banker in Louisiana who said exactly this. Um, we said two things that were interesting. One is, um, we all got burned so badly in the savings and loan crisis. Um, that we learned some lessons that everybody else in the country had to learn later yeah, on. Later on. Yeah. But the other thing that he said that I've kept with me is that I, I have to be good to my customers because I go to church with them. I see them during the week and I, I can't. I mean, I don't want to be the kind of person who would cheat them, but I can't.
3: And th- this is an important point that I think you bring up in, in, your, in your comment, which is, we're 10 years on from the global financial crisis. Uh, the regulatory system is changing. Bankers change firms very quickly. And of course, the entire cadre of bankers changes over that decade. I have, I have colleagues in the, in the big firms and they say to me, look, Stuart, you know, the people on the trading floor right now are in their early 20s. They were children in the global financial crisis. So we have to rearticulate the lessons that we learned living through it so that they don't have to learn the lessons by making the same mistakes that we made on that occasion.
4: Yeah, and I think the point you made about sort of the story of the banker, right? That said, I went to church and I lived in the same community. As humans, proximity is important, right? We care about and we take care of people, customers or others that are close to us. Proximity is important. And because of that, one of the things that we hear a lot from, from senior leaders in the industry is a lot of thinking around how digitization and artificial intelligence may even push us further, right? Because that creates even more distance between you know us and our customers. And there's a lot of great thinking going on in the industry right now saying, okay, the way we work is fundamentally going to change. And digitization and, and artificial intelligence is great, and it brings a lot of benefit both for customers and for banks. But can we think about what are the risks around conduct now that we have machines and, you know, technology doing tasks that historically might have done by a human, and how does that change our ethics and our values around taking care of our customers?
1: What is the role since the crisis that cognitive dissonance has played in banking culture? Um, as, as an outsider to that culture, it was always shocking to me. It would have been about 2009, 2010, uh, Barack Obama said the word fat cats that was about as far as he went, um, and there were people on Wall Street who were apoplectic about that. Um, and it was a pretty mild intervention, uh, the phrase fat cats, given the scale of the catastrophe. Um, so what role does, look, stop blaming us. It's not our fault. We didn't do this. It was Nobody could have seen this coming. What role does that sort of, I guess, resentment play or, or utter unwillingness to see fault play in the culture that we have now 10 years later?
3: Well, the people you're describing suffer from what's known as Miles Law where you stand depends on where you sit, right? So in the banks, they they have the institutional desire to forget the things that they did 10 years ago and move on quickly and say it had nothing to do with us. You're right. That type of uh, excuse was being bandied around shortly after the global financial crisis. But having said that, I do think what we saw during our research for this piece of work was that actually within the big firms, there are a lot of people there that are constantly focusing on these issues that we're discussing today on culture, on behavior, on conduct, because they haven't forgotten, they understand it. And they're trying to grapple with a very, as you said, complex problem. It's not easy to solve, it takes a long time. And as Nick said, it's it's never ending. Getting culture right, getting conduct right is something that has to be a constant focus of all the leaders in the firm, every day, day in, day out. It Sometimes is tiresome, but it needs constant focus. So I agree there's, there's there's one side of the sort of lobbyists and the bankers who say, oh, it's not nothing to do with us, oh, stop blaming us. But actually within many of these firms, there are, there are teams of people who are grappling with this constantly
2: so banking isn't different from lots of elements of human endeavor and that there are always going to be a certain number of behaviors that are not going to be conducive to the kind of changes we're talking about there is going to be denial amongst some people there are going to be people in groups who said well we didn't have the global financial crisis as seriously in our marketplaces so we don't really have to change because we are all all right thank you kindly i think what this report is indicating is that this is a big enough problem of tr- rebuilding trust in many marketplaces and that it requires the kind of focus and support for the people who are seeing, as Stuart said, the need to do this and do it really well. Um, I- I'm convinced that it the deniers, uh, the denial people are not going to are not winning the day at, as as we speak. But at the same time there has to be continued ongoing support for those people who are trying to make this better and the the report's got a, a number of very concrete suggestions for how that can happen many of which we've talked about during this uh, this discussion
1: nick let me ask you as a former regulator um elizabeth warren is uh, often told an anecdote who knows whether it's apocryphal about uh, her idea for creating the consumer financial protection bureau and it goes like this she's talking to a banker. Um, She says, why do you do this to people? And he says, we don't want to do this to people. We wish we didn't have to. It's toxic to us too, but we have to. So help us, give us rules so that we can all together hold hands and walk away from this awful behavior. Do, is that true? Do, 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 Do banks need better regulation so they can not do the things they don't want to do anyway?
2: So I've heard that story too. And i have several reactions to that story the first reaction i have is that on behalf of the banker i believe that's a bit of a cop out (laughs) Um, it's i think it's too easy to just say if you got the regulation right we in the bank wouldn't have to do any of this you know this has got to start with the banks with their boards with their senior management with their management all the way down the line with the front line all that sort of kind of stuff um so that's one of my reactions and, and a partial answer that regulation will never be able to fully deal with its problem if the banks don't seize on it, as they have in a number of markets and a number of banks in this marketplace, and do it really, really well. Secondly, um, so the report does not say that regulation is the main solution here. There is, I think, a limited role for regulation because regulation, you can't regulate what conduct ought to look like, what ethics ought to look like. There is a role in many marketplaces for effective so-called conduct of business regulation, regulating what are the principles that have to be in place that firms have to follow for how they treat their customers in a very general kind of way, because that actually allows there to be redress when necessary, when there's been egregious problems. I don't want to comment on whether that regulation is exactly the right place in the U.S. compared to where it should be. That's, that's something that you know, um, there've been there's there's a lot of debate on and all that kind of stuff. It's handled differently in different marketplaces. So there has to be a foundation of those kind of rules, but that's not enough to to solve this problem. Um, and and I'd come back to that banker and think, you know, you can influence this hugely in how you run and lead your organization. Um, and I think, and this report thinks that's a, that's a really important part of the solution. Let
1: let me ask one last question. Um, and it's for, for anybody. I wonder about who it is who gets to make these decisions. When we think about some of the worst abuses, uh, of the consumer banks, if we go back to the robo signing, I wonder whether that would have happened if there had been a senior executive whose family had been foreclosed on that somebody who would have had the sort of the, the moral understanding to say, look, you just can't do that to people. I know what it's like to have that done to you. Um, does banking also need to fix who it recruits and moving beyond our traditional understanding of what the word diversity means to diversity from of where you're from, diversity of what your income level was when you grew up, uh, those sorts of things that give you the kinds of experiences that help you understand that there are certain things you don't do to your customers. And, and, and if that is a problem, what's the fix?
4: Yeah, it's it's very important for these institutions to have multiple voices at the table, right? So diversity, as you said, all sorts of diversity, to have people that raise their hands and ask questions for them to challenge and challenge in a positive way, right? To ask questions of one another and challenge each other and bring new thinking to the table. And that is another area that we're seeing a lot of institutions focus on. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to create that diversity. But I think- representing customers. And the customer base is very diverse. So you want a leadership team that represents the client base, that represents the, the societies and the communities in which they operate. And where you not only have diverse people that come together, but they all feel safe and and able to, to raise their hand, to ask questions, to challenge one another, and have really productive conversations, even if they're difficult conversations.
2: And just to pick up on that, not only to raise their hand, but also to raise their hand if they see something that they don't think is right. So there's a hugely important part of ensuring that cultures allow effectively whistleblowers and protect them and that the people who see things that are not right, that those people have an opportunity to raise it and it gets treated seriously, right up to including the CEO and the board level. I agree with Elizabeth that the organizations that are really doing well at this are thinking about what kind of diversity they need, given the client base that they have and given who they're trying to serve. And they're trying to ensure that you have that mix of people with more than just our standard kind of definitions of diversity. Um, but this is there isn't a single fix to this kind of stuff. We're really talking about leading and managing these organizations very, very well. And that's what leading and managing is all about. Stuart, Nick, Elizabeth, thank you all very much.
1: Thank
4: you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Alpha
1: Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us alphachat at FD.com for any reason at all. For my part, I just want to go to Iceland.